we're just breaking up there a little bit. Let's hope that oh. doesn't happen again. The podcast you're about to listen to does break up from time to time. I've tried to clean it up as much as possible, and I've actually inserted myself as kind of a mediator from time to time when what we're talking about is not incredibly obvious due to the breakup. So hopefully it's not too bad in this final product, but uh, just be aware that if it does happen, it's not your uh, MP3 player with the issue. It was this file. Sorry, and enjoy. Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 13 for May 21st, 2010. Episode 13. We're teenagers now. Yes, we have entered the teen years with our issues. This, uh, this show, we're going to focus on early voyages. Star Trek early voyages, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, these came out in, what, 1997, released by Marvel as part of their big... Marvel Presents Paramount Comics push they did there in the late 90s. Yeah, and, and, and a good push it is, at least uh, these this series of, uh, of comics. Right, so or Early Voyages details the, uh, not the first mission of the Enterprise, but uh, at least the first captain we ever saw on screen, which is Christopher Pike. Yes, an excellent captain he was. He's one of my favorites, even though he only had Really, one outing on screen. Yeah, exactly. He's one of my favorites, also. He handled himself self very well with the Telosians, and uh, we never got to see him again. And then the yeah. actor passed on eventually. After... Oh, did he pass on? Yeah. You mean passed away? Yes. Yes. Hmm. Passed on. Passed away. Yes. I did not know that. That's sad. Yeah, he died a long time ago. Yeah, I've only seen him in Star Trek and. Uh... The King of Kings, where he played uh, Jesus. Jesus Christ, yes. And I thought he was pretty good, yeah. The few things I saw him in, uh, he was quite good. I think he was a you know, really up-and-coming actor, fell off the face of the earth. I, I, I don't know whether that was coinciding with his death or whether he just didn't ascend that high after starting to get more roles. I know that there was a lot of controversy, like when he was when he was Jesus, they called him like a, a surfer Jesus or something like that, because you know, he, he's obviously not, you know, Jewish with the darker skin or the darker hair. I mean, he's blonde haired or blonde haired, blue eyed. So I, I did read some criticism about that with about his uh, being picked for the role. Uh, hmm. But, you know, he's right up there with. Uh, um, Christian Bale and uh, uh, William Defoe as as being a on screen version of of Jesus. So he's exactly. he's in good company. He is. Uh, I don't remember the name of the actor that was in the Mel Gibson more recent uh, film, but he was Jim quite good. Ca- Jim Caviezel. There you go. Yeah, yeah, he was pretty good. Yeah, he was good. As Christ. But that's not what we're here to talk about, is no. it? 
We're here to talk about Star Trek, my friend. Oh, yes. Early Voyages, specifically. And we've got three issues for you today. Three quite excellent issues, I must say. Again, really, like last week, uh, really good artistry, I think. And the stories are really good. There's a certain uh, grittiness to these, uh, to these early voyages that I like quite a bit. Yeah, he died in 1969. Wow, he wouldn't... So, if he had been stuck around, he would have just completed the three years, and uh, he would have been barely been able to finish the three years of Star Trek if he had joined up. Hmm. Well, he suffered a stroke while flying back from the USA to Spain after filming a a show called Viva America, and he was only 42 years old. Wow, that's that's terrible. Yeah. Hmm, I did not know that. Goes to show. Yeah, you can go at any time. Exactly. You never know when your clock is or your card's going to be punched. Well, I like that. Uh, you know, he may have had a short life, but he's definitely lived on in 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 Star Trek fandom. Obviously, in this this these series, and also he's been in several books and other things that uh, that uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed. Right. All right. So let's just jump into the uh, synopsis here of uh, episode or issue number one. So this uh, came out in February of 1997, and it was entitled Flesh of My Flesh. And uh, the credits are Dan Abnett and Ian Edginton were the writers. Patrick uh, Zercher was the penciler. Uh, Greg Adams, inker. Marie Jevons, colorist. J- uh, Janice Chiang, letterer. Bobby Chase, editor. Oh, actually, that Janus was letterer. This Bobby Chase is editor, and Bob Harris is editor in chief. Okay, so we start off with uh, Captain Christopher Pike and the crew of the USS Enterprise are ordered to divert from their scheduled mission to the Marat system to investigate the disappearance of some crew uh, disappearance of crews of several small ships. Um, aboard the uh, aboard the Enterprise, the crew all checks in, uh, so we get a nice uh, shot of all the all the folks on the bridge. Uh, you'll notice that there's a slight difference of uh, crew members than what we see in the episode The Cage. So this is supposed to happen shortly before that episode. Uh, the new folks that you've seen before is a uh, abhorrent Lyran uh, alien. His name is Nano. Uh, a woman named uh, Sita Mohindas. And a Native American engineer named Moves with Burning Grace. And there's also a close friend of Pike's uh, by the name of Yeoman Cusack. All right, so uh, as they're going to investigate the missing crews of the ship, uh, they're intercepted by uh, a monstrous monster that warps them and has long spikes and tentacles. So the tentacles, uh, or excuse me, the alien craft attempts to make contact, uh, but the computer and nano are unable to comprehend it. And then there's this huge buildup of energy, and the Enterprise is just engulfed in this white energy. So now we get a flashback of Pike investigating or inspecting the uh, Enterprise in dry dock with uh, Captain April. So April's uh, giving... Pike the the lecture uh, and handing over the 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 command of the Enterprise to Pike. Uh, he says that uh, Pike will have uh, only woman who will who he'll ever give his heart to. Obviously referring to the Enterprise, and then he also repeats the uh, same 
sentiment that we hear from Kirk and Picard <laughs> later on where he says you need to fight promotions and you always need to stay with your ship. Yeah. So as they're departing, April asks if he's uh, already picked the first officer, and if not, he may have an idea, and then it, then it cuts back to the present. So everybody on the bridge is waking up after the attack. Uh, number one, they discover that is missing, and the ship is tangled in pencils and is being dragged by the alien left. Her voice, who we did see in the episode of The Cage, arrives on the bridge and starts to everybody. Then we flash to uh, a picture of Pike, and uh, he's naked, and he's like in the fetal position, and he starts remembering. So we then get a flashback of his first interview with number one, and uh, we're introduced to her. She uh, says she has hopes of commanding a science vessel. She's only a lieutenant commander, so I, I thought that was odd. So she's a lieutenant commander, but she hopes that her next assignment will be commanding a science vessel. But uh, Pike asks her to become executive officer of the Enterprise, uh, which she accepts. Um, and then he, he attempts her name, refers to her as Robert, uh, Lieutenant Robbins Yuri, and then she cuts him off saying, number one, will be fine. So we never get what her name is. <laughs> All right, so back to the bridge. The doctor informs number one that everybody was secretly experimented on while they were all knocked out. And then he reminds her that with Pike gone, she is in charge. So Spock's there. He uh, requests to borrow the doctor's tricorder to investigate the, uh, the tentacles. So now we flash back to Pike and number one interviewing a cadet Spock. Uh, they are about two and a half years into their first five-year mission. Uh, they're going to go to some area of space, and uh, they're basically asking Spock to uh, become an intern. And he agrees, so he'll be placed on the Enterprise as the science officer. So then we flash back to Spock um, informing the crew of his findings. The ship uh, has infected – the alien ship has infected the Enterprise with uh, some sort of organic computer virus that's leaching the power. So they predict that they only have a few hours left until they'll be either wherever the alien wants them to be or they'll be completely powerless. So number one starts to organize an away team to board the vessel and save Pike. So then we flash back to uh, Pike and Yeoman Cusack going over um, some crew rosters to uh, help fill out the, uh, the, the, the crew for the, their second five-year mission. All right, so then we uh, now flash back to a, a high inside the alien ship, and he has all these nasty-looking alien tubes running through his body, and it's, uh, aliens start talking to him, and he's being forced to relive all these uh, images for some reason. And the aliens inform him that he's about to be harvested. All right, just then, the, uh, the way he uh, frees Pike using the laser guns. And as they're escaping, uh, number one is grabbed. Uh, Nano is able to use his pyrotechnic skills to just burst the tentacle flame. Uh, eventually, they encounter the true beings in there. Uh, they introduce themselves as the Golter. Yeah, sounds as good as any. Nagolter. Nagolter. Uh, so basically, the Nagolter say that they're going to harvest the crew, and they just don't understand why the crew is resisting the uh, sacred harmony of the uh, harvesting. Sure. So as the Nagolter is about to physically attack the crew, they are beamed back aboard the Enterprise uh, just in the nick of time. 
So Spock uh, explains that he's able to start curing the uh, Enterprise uh, by removing this uh, organic virus. Uh, just as the Enterprise uh, is, is I don't know, it, it's, it reaches its destination. It's this monstrous mothership, and it's like a planet-sized, I, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it's Or moon-sized. Yeah, okay. It's moon-sized. It's still giant. Death Star-sized. <laughs> so they reach it, and, it, and it's all organic. It looks like this monstrous, uh, tentacled monster thing. Reminding it's like a tumor. Me. It's like a, a big tumor? tumor or something. Yeah, I can see that. It's nasty looking, whatever it is. So uh, the uh, it starts grabbing the Enterprise with its tentacles, um, and uh, the Enterprise is able to use their phasers to cut free. And then, as the mothership's about to completely engulf them, P- uh, Pike fires a photon torpedo at point blank range, which just completely destroys this the whole ship. And they're able to escape through safe to uh, they're able to escape to safety. Uh, Pike feels remorse that they just discovered a new race and they had to destroy it completely. And then the Enterprise continues on its previous uh, previous heading to the Marat system. The end. I guess it does kind of look like a tumor. Or a gigantic booger. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what you were going to say? Booger? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's it's this, uh, this asymmetrical just like oval thing with tentacles and like pustules on top of it. It's just just nasty. It's nasty. It, it could be kind of like maybe a a giant jellyfish. Maybe that's what they were going for. Yeah. Yeah, could I don't be. know. It, it's pretty nasty looking. And you know that little ship that picked it up was bigger than the Enterprise, and and this thing is just monstrous compared to either one of those. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny at the end about how Pike uh, feels such remorse about blowing away this life form and stuff but really come on that was that was they were going to kill you man I mean it, it was self defense that, that's the problem you have my problem that was the one shot and it just completely destroys this whole planet size well you, it, it's like hitting the ventilation port on the Death Star because <laughs> uh, well, I, I know it's a little ridiculous but uh, I mean it, they, they shot the photons down its throat or something didn't they well, they did they? say they were going to do that, but there's not really a throat there. I thought it was more just a saying. Right. Oh, I get you. I see what you're you saying. You know, like, yeah. shoot it up their tailpipe, you know, something like that. <laughs> exactly. Well, obviously they hit the exhaust port that mattered, that went to the central reactor, yeah. I guess. At least yeah. that's what you're supposed to believe. I-, I didn't think about Star Wars, but yeah, uh, totally the exact same thing. <laughs> Only they didn't have to cruise along the outside of it. Now, when it, when when that thing does explode, you get this beautiful picture of the explosion and just and it looks guts. like that that organic matter is just flying everywhere. And then you see the Enterprise riding out the shockwave. It's it's a really cool picture. Yeah, something about this series is they like to do a lot of two page spreads, and uh, you know they, most of them are quite good. They take their time. Uh, I mean, there, there, there's one, two, there's at least three of them in this this issue. Yeah, this issue was really long, so that was why my synopsis was, it seemed like I was getting a little uh, a little windy there, like I was talking for a long time, but I guess it was, it was like 48 pages long. Like it says on the cover, double-sized, yeah. fantastic first issue. 
And it was pretty good. I think it was quite good, too. I liked it. But about that explosion there at the end, and they're riding the shockwave. Now, that's not even though the good 12 years before the new Star Trek movie came out, uh, that I saw had Christopher Pike in it, played by, um, uh, what's his name? Nowhere Man. The guy who played on Nowhere. I forgot his name. But anyways. But when they blew up the the black hole, and they're riding out that shockwave, to me this, this right. picture kind of looks just like that. Right. Same idea, anyway. Yeah. But it's just a cool visual. Like, Yeah, very action-packed. I really like the cover. Because you get this it, action shot of all the key people. It, exactly. So they got a lot of nice insets where they got the main center of action, uh, three of the crewmen with Pike blasting away uh, in, a, in a kneeling position, then, then Spock's head over the, over the shoulder, then Enterprise firing, uh, Federation, uh, United Federation planet symbol, then guys getting transported. They even have the shuttlecraft. I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, if you could get that pesky really barcode out of the way, it would look even better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, see this cover right here. If that was a, if that was a poster, I would definitely buy it. What'd you think of the the laser guns? Or do they actually call them phasers in here? They're they're supposed to be laser guns, right? Because in the cage, don't they refer to them as lasers with an L instead of a PH? Uh, that's a really good question. That uh, they might have. I don't remember that, but it's very possible. Yeah, I'm pretty. Uh, sh- I, I. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember in any. I don't think any of these three issues. I don't. Re- I don't recall them saying directly what they are. Uh, I think at some point they do. They actually call it phaser, and I was like, no, it's not. Maybe it was in one of the other two books. I don't see it in my notes for shoot number one. I thought it was when yeah. they were getting. Sh- they're shooting, shooting out, but shooting out of the tentacles. But I might be wrong. So on the first big spread page, though, I thought the one crewman, the helmsman station. I forgot his name, but he looks like he's got Johnny Storm hair or something. Oh, yeah, his name is uh, Tyler, isn't it? Lieutenant Ty- Tyler. Yeah, Tyler, something like that, right. Yeah. Now, he was actually in the episode, right? He's one of the – I didn't mention him earlier because he was actually in the the Cage episode, right? Well, if that's the same guy. I don't remember from the from the pilot them mentioning his name. They might have. I'd have to go back and look at the uh, at the video again. Uh, sim- s- similar look. It could have been. I think it's supposed to be him, right. but, I mean – but this woman here, the uh, the woman that's at the the other station, right next to him. I mean, she she wasn't in the show. No, no. Pretty much, um, it was number one, and then that other yeoman, young one that was uh, that ended up down on the on the planet. Yeah, her name was Colt. Colt. What a great name. Yeah. yeah. So so definitely there weren't that. There, there were definitely in the original pilot, there weren't as many women in key uh, character positions. At least in this revision, fresh look at, at that time period, uh, there are more. Now, was Colt, the, the woman that we were talking about, was she yeoman or what was her role? Because I don't remember it ever actually saying. Um, she seemed I like think... she had a bigger role than yeoman Rand does in the... Uh, I don't remember exactly just because it's been a while since I've watched that, except for watching the first nine minutes into it, as you suggested a few days ago. But in my a few neurons, a few memory cells firing, I thought she was a yeoman, but they really didn't show her that much. And then I'm going to prove my ignorance here, but I've never quite understood what a yeoman does. I, I always thought yeoman were, um, were low-ranked officers. Because cause Yeoman Rand, I mean, 
she seemed like she just would hand him stuff to sign and <laughs> bring him coffee or something. I don't remember her yeah. actually having a function. I, I thought the yeomans were like uh, low-rank officers that were like assistants. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought too. But this this guy, this yeoman Cusack, uh, I mean, he he's he, he's like a right hand guy without the rank. Right. I mean, he's helping Pike uh, decide on which crew members uh, he should pick for the next away missions or the uh, sorry the five year mission. Right. I mean, he seems like he definitely has the captain's ear at all times. Yeah, and he's a and he's a, an irreverent uh, jokester about it too. He seems pretty funny. I really like him. A, a good character who they're definitely set up setting up as uh as somebody very important in pike's life right so uh for a very specific purpose in issue three and, and the whole comment about how 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 focal a character uh yeoman kusak is uh in in this series um i think it's i think it just underscores the idea that captains can run their ships and they can do it any way they want to so if they want to bring a beagle on board they can do it and if they want to uh, have a yeoman who is a right-hand guy, uh, in some ways uh, more so, in some ways more so than even number one, yeah, that's what the captain does. Yeah, it's captain's prerogative. Exactly. So, what do you think about Robert April parts, where we get walk around the, the? I mean, they're actually walking around the Enterprise versus flying around it. But uh, I thought it was a nice little nod to to other Star Trek when they show off the ship for the first time. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and also, how often are we treated to the one captain handing off a ship to the next? Like, never. Or at least I don't remember that ever happening before. I think that was kind of cool. Plus, actually seeing April depicted, even though the first time we see April, uh, quite frankly, looks a little bit like Lauren Green. Oh, he does kind of. A little well, bit. Well, I think April was always supposed to be Gene Roddenberry. Ah, so, really? In fact, in a lot of... Uh, like the uh, Star Trek Encyclopedia and stuff like that. Anytime it mentioned Robert April, mm-hmm. the picture was was this drawing or this guy that looked, I mean, or was a, just a true picture of Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, that's cool. And Robert April was in one episode of the uh, the animated series, um, and so in that you know it was a cartoon, so he didn't quite look like Gene Roddenberry, but right. uh, he was you know an older man, and uh, he didn't quite look like he does here, but. I guess you could go with it that it's the same guy, but I really liked it. I, and I, you know, the the only part that I didn't like was when he said the exact same sentence that Kirk and Picard were <laughs> saying, which is, "Don't let them promote you." Exactly. Yeah, I, I thought I thought that was really. Uh, I, what's interesting is um, a lot of these guys, whether it be the the New Frontier issues or these, they, they definitely do um, borrow from the from the history of what's gone before in the series, whether it be movies or the TV shows or even uh, novels mm-hmm. or cartoon series. Um, I, I, I do like that. And we'll yeah, see more of that as we get to the other issues. Exactly. The borrowing. I think I know what you're talking about, but uh, we'll wait till we get there. Issue number two. I, I'm just saying issue number two. Yeah, well, like let's, the, let's la- the last page. <laughs> yes. Okay, I know what you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Well, the last thing I had about this is just the the technology. I like how they're really using the look of the the cage, which was you know they had different guns and different communicators than they do in the Kirk era. Right. So I think it's a nice little nod or uh, detail, a nice little attention to detail that uh, makes it feel I don't know like this truly could have been a prequel to the cage. Right. Consistency. 
like that. And that gun is probably one of my favorite guns. It's yeah. just gigantic barrel and everything. Yeah, I, I like it a lot better than the ones they used in Enterprise. In Enterprise. I can't remember how, what the guns look like there. You don't? You don't? Oh, no, I, I thought you liked yeah. Enterprise. I, thought you liked I loved phasers. Enterprise. It's one of my favorites. Do you remember but... what the phasers look like? It's not coming to me right away. Yeah, well, it's kind of bulbous. It's a little kind of, kind of, kind of thick and chunky looking uh, above the handle. Did it look kind of like the next generation phasers with just a with like a hand grip on it? No, it does not look like a dustbuster. <laughs> okay. It looks it looks like a traditional kind of you know you know Colt forty five kind of pistol. Only um, it's almost like 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 curve and oval shaped. Uh, on the top part of it. Mm. I'll have to pull those out and watch them. You should do that. I can't pull out a comic book because as of today, there has never been a Enterprise comic book. And I oh. think that's that's a huge miss because I loved Enterprise. And I think it got canceled way too early. Yeah. And I would love to see it continued in its own comic book. It's never been in anything. You were just breaking up there a little bit. Let's hope that oh. doesn't happen again. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I liked Enterprise too, but because of the low ratings, the perceived lack of success, we will see if anybody jumps on that that bandwagon. Well, uh, they're making TV series or they're making comic book series out of Assignment <laughs> Earth and things like that. Yeah, 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 good point. Good point. But that was a really good episode. I really liked Assignment Earth. Yeah, but it wasn't as good as Enterprise as a whole, I would argue. Yeah, well, what's better? I mean, they're both good. They're, 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 they're entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and I will say that um, uh, multiple novels ha- were written that included Gary uh, Seven also. Yep, but we'll talk about those when we start reviewing the Assignment Earth is- uh, issues. Yes. All right, so you want to go straight into episode or issue number two, or do you have anything else about this one? Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that Dr. Boyce, um, mm-hmm. I did not remember that being the same name as the doctor in the uh, pilot cage, but it, very possible. But I will say that the Dr. Boyce depicted in, um, in the comic book, these comic books, doesn't really seem to look much like the guy in the, the actor in the pilot. Yeah, I don't remember him having the two-toned hair color like he does here. Right. But I was thinking that that was his name. It could, but, it, it very, very well could have been. But I'm just saying, the look of the guy isn't the same. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, this guy looks a little bit more rugged. Yeah, he has the like the uh, Mister Fantastic hairstyle. <laughs> exactly. Dark on top, and then he has the uh, gray streaks there at the temples. Yep. And the way he's depicted, at least I assume that's Doctor Boyce on the cover. Um, on the cover, if that truly is him, because he has the same kind of uh, dark hair on the top, uh, graying on the temples, hair, uh, he looks a lot more like a, you know, a little bit more like a marine or something, you know, somebody you don't want to mess with as opposed to a doctor. Really, eh, that's about it. That's that's pretty much it. I, I I do like that when when they do when you finally do see where Pike's being held, because in the middle of the of the comic where they're uh, showing Pike being mentally um, attacked in some kind of dark space where there's just little geometric shapes and stuff uh, mm-hmm. in a space where he can't, where Pike himself can't see, but you can kind of see him when it finally shows where he actually is. I thought it was pretty cool 
uh, where they basically he's naked and uh, <laughs> completely uh, wrapped up in all these tentacles and stuff. And he's in a real nasty situation here. Yeah, it's it's pretty nasty because those tubes are like going all inside of him and stuff. I mean, it's pretty nasty. Right. And then, just in the nick of time where they do save him, as you had mentioned with the phasers blasting, it looks like these knives and stuff are heading as head, Pike's head. So I think that was pretty good. Uh, a little dramatic, but, uh, you know, pretty good. Oh, my God, how's he going to get out of this one? And then, whammo, phasers firing just in the nick of time. It, it was pretty cool. It was. I, I thought this issue was really good. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Good one. Double size. Yeah, so these next two will be a They're little shorter. Yes, they will be. Okay, so issue number two, titled The Fires of Pharos, uh, was published in March 1997. The creative team included the writers Ian Edgington and Dan Abnett, penciler Patrick Zurch, Inker Greg Adams, color by Marie Jabins, lettering Janice Chang, editor Bobby Chase. Okay, so an um, editor in chief, Bob Harris. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like do you need do you need to mention two editors. I don't know. I think one's good enough, but yes, editor in chief, whatever that means. Well, I wonder if the editor in chief was part of. Maybe he overlooked all the Star Trek titles that were being released by Marvel at this time, and Bobby Chase was just uh, this this title. I mean, I'm just making that up. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Well, he was the same guy that did issue one, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. And possibly issue three, too. Hmm. Well, let's get into it, shall we? Okay. Uh, the cover shows a Klingon cruiser, a nasty-looking Klingon captain with his left fist thrust forward and clenched teeth, number one and several other crewmen phasers blasting and Captain Pike with an alert, determined look. The lettering in the middle of the picture uh, middle of the cover summarizes the issue well. Battle with the Klingons! Uh, with really cool kind of a special uh, font in, when, when they have the word Klingon showing. Uh, of course with an exclamation mark. Pretty cool cover. The inside cover shows battle chatter giving shield and target status with the Enterprise dominant in the picture and a bunch of smaller ships in frame. The next page is another one of those impressive two-page spreads showing the Enterprise in the center, a space station in the background, and nine smaller ships in either retreat or attack posture. The crew is commenting on the attackers of the space station breaking and running. On the bridge, Pike tells Pike tells Mr. Tyler there will be no crow, crowing on the bridge in response to Tyler's gloating over their victory. Pike leads a landing party to Starbase 13, where they meet Commodore Halweth, a very uh, Kirk-like in a very Kirk-like stud muffin tunic. Uh, the severe damage in the station is evidence of the frequent attacks perpetrated by the privateers and brigands that. Uh, prey on commercial traffic in the Marat Nebular, Nebula and don't appreciate the presence of Starfleet. The violence the station endures leads the occupants to nicknaming it Fort Apache. Captain Pike comments to the Commodore how he expected the station to have damage, but not this severe damage. 
The Commodore comments on the strategic importance to shipping that the nebula has always been and the Pharos project that hopes to establish a, quote, lighthouse structure on a nearby planet to broadcast navigational data and log illegal traffic. The criminal element is none too happy with the project, but to make matters worse, rich, pure dilithium deposits were found while constructing the lighthouse. Spock and Pike both see the problems that this could cause if word got out. The Commodore observes word has gotten out since they have lost contact with the construction crews building the Pharos lighthouse. Elsewhere, a Klingon heavy cruiser is monitoring the area and has detected the Enterprise's arrival. Commander Kaj demonstrates his mastery of the vessel by roughing up an insubordinate subordinate. Kaj states that he will attack the Enterprise, but at a time of his choosing. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is making its way to the site planet of the lighthouse structure. The Commodore warns Pike over radio to watch out for the unexpected, to which Pike looks a little perturbed with the advice. Pike orders broadband sensor sweeps anyway and eventually goes to yellow alert based on Spock's analysis of the danger posed by a potentially united alliance of Orion, Arcturans, Codini, and renegade human criminals. The Enterprise enters orbit and is astonished at the lighthouse structure that is so tall it towers above the planet's cloud layer. Number one takes a landing party down to the structure to find out what happened to the Federation builders of the lighthouse. The landing party almost immediately comes under aggressive attack and must scramble for cover. Meanwhile on the Enterprise, they too are under attack by, uh, uh, by a Klingon cruiser that is using disruptors and logical tactics to deal some serious blows to the already battle-damaged Enterprise. When the situation looks darkest for the landing party and the Enterprise, number one uses the Enterprise's transporters to beam her and Cusack behind the attacking Klingons, where they are able to dispense with their attackers. Pike, Pike verbally fences with the Klingon commander, who turns out to be pretty sharp. Spock observes that the Klingons make a good point about the Federation keeping the strategic dilithium find a secret on a planet that belongs to no one. If the Enterprise gets destroyed, it's because of the Federation's greed, the Klingon commander states. After running out of rational options, Pike decides on an irrational option, assuming that the Klingons would not risk war with the Federation over nothing. He beams the landing party and lighthouse construction crew survivors to the Enterprise, then sets the dilithium deposits ablaze using the Enterprise's phasers. Kaj states that he underestimated Pike and will not do so again. After being informed by his lieutenant that other Federation ships are approaching, Kaj decides to depart while quoting the Klingon's apparently favorite human literary idiom. Revenge is a dish best served cold. He left out the part about it being very cold in space, but you get the idea. The end. There it is. What better issue could you have? You got Pike, you got the crew, you got Klingons, you got conflict. And you got smart Klingons. That's what I liked. Yes. 
Yes. So uh, uh, a point a point I didn't make in the as I was going through uh, the synopsis is the fact that uh, Kaj uh, apparently has a permanently damaged right hand, to which his insubordinate who was his subordinate who was insubordinate subordinate had mentioned about him being uh, gimpy, and not and not not an appropriate uh, leader. Right, and the way that he disciplines him <laughs> is by using his good hand to ram that guy's face straight through the the console. Yeah, which uh, glass sprang. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. Exactly. So this guy is used to the idea. I th- I think that's how I interpret it. This guy is used to the idea of uh, compensating for uh, maybe some uh, lackings uh, with other strengths, including his mind. Yeah, exactly. So he's not the traditional Klingon warrior who just goes in there and starts attacking. He actually strategizes and and attacks only when you know he can do the most damage. Exactly. Which you know when they're fighting that Klingon uh, cruiser, they're still able to beam people back <laughs> and forth. Exactly. And so as soon yeah. as the shields go down, you would think that if he was that smart, he would say, "All right, shoot now." I mean, but. Well, yeah, but okay, that's that's one of my points. They never talk about the shields being up. Uh, at least I, I don't recall them ever mentioning that. So, you know, on the one hand, when I was first reading this, I was thinking, ah, number one, cool tactic. That's pretty good. You know, beam up behind him. But but wait a minute, the Enterprise was being attacked, so you couldn't have beamed over. Um, right. I mean, they don't have the technology to have little holes in the shields, do they? I don't think so. I don't even think they have that in Next Generation, or do I, they? I don't think they do. Yeah. So they sure as hell didn't have it back then. So that's another one of those little um, Indiana Jones on top of the submarine for a very long period of time, uh, you know, kind of things. You just got to let it pass. What's the big deal about Indiana Jones being on top of the submarine? Yeah. Indiana Jones. Well, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Indiana Jones, Nazi base. Uh, the Nazis get inside of a submarine. Indiana Jones swims and is on top of the submarine. And then they go ahead and, and go to the map scene where they're traveling very long distances to get to the uh, the objective point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Indy's on top of a submarine. So number one, odds are they're going to they're gonna submerge. Which is a problem there. But even if they didn't submerge, they're out in the middle of the ocean. You don't think he would die because uh, of um, exposure? I thought it shows him getting in. I thought he opened no, up that hatch. I don't think so. I always took it that he did. Because he swims over, and then that, that captain is waving at him, and he waves back. And yeah. then I thought it shows him then, opening up the, the hatch. And then he throws his hair back, looks around, and that's the last thing I saw. I do not see anything about him opening up a hatch or anything. And by the way, don't you think the crew would have noticed that? But maybe not. Well, yeah, anybody sti- climbing on top of a submarine, that makes noise. I mean, you're, they're basically oh, well, in a big too. tin can. I didn't even mention that. I didn't even think about that, but that's a point, too. Anyway, the, the point is, if he got into the submarine, somebody probably would have noticed. And they didn't show True. him go in there, I don't think. And I watched that movie a lot. Um, yeah. And then on the on the other side, he's still wet, and you see him getting a uniform on, and he's on the dock. That's so true. Um, they're insinuating he was on top of the boat the whole time, which is like, huh? You probably would have died of exposure anyway. So yeah, you would. But, but or boredom. 
Yeah, but this one is a little less. I mean, this thing about number one's tactic is a little bit less obvious than the than than that. But uh, but yeah. So how'd they do that? I don't know. That's fine. I'm just going with it. Yeah, yeah. It's still a good story. I really like oh, this yeah. one too. And I and I love that they're building up this uh, Kaj character, K A A J. How do you pronounce that? Kaj. That he and Pike may be like. Uh, Adversaries, like exactly. like he just basically swears this vendetta against him, and exactly. uh, I hope that they play it out in later later issues that he comes back and he's kind of uh, Pike's consistent foe, his nemesis. Yes. Just jumping back to the front, um, when the crew beams down to the space station, I don't know. Do you beam down to a space station or just into it? Beam over to? I don't know. Beam over to? I don't know. Um, there's a woman there that beams with Spock. The doctor and uh, Kurt, I mean, not Kurt, Pike. I don't know who she is, but she's wearing a blue miniskirt type thing, and she has like fishnet stockings. Yeah, 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 she does. <laughs> and I thought that in the episode The Cage, one of the things that Roddenberry was kind of forced to change was that in, in The Cage, all the women wear pants. Yep. And every, every woman wears a pants and a sweater, just like all the men wear. And it wasn't until they had to remake it, they had to put in a whole bunch more color. With So they added the red shirts, and mm-hmm. and they gave all the women those incredibly short skirts. So yeah. I wonder where they came up with this. Like, we should go ahead and put in a girl in a super short, short skirt and fishnets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't remember the fishnets ever being around in, in Star Trek, but uh, definitely the uh, the skirts reminiscent of... Of the Kirk era, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like the fishnets and I like the skirt, but I, it just—I don't know where it came from because it's not in the in the shows. Yeah, and I'm not sure, but I think the uh, the crewman that goes down—I think don't they mention something about her being a nurse or something or medical? Do they? So yeah, here it is. That's Nurse Carlotti. Who in the first episode is introduced as head nurse Gabrielle Carlotti uh, okay. from the New Venice Colony. Which, by the way, we didn't mention this, or I don't think we mentioned it, but I, I thought there was a, there was a part where uh, where Pike's brain was being uh, probed and his memories being uh, looked at. And, and, oh yeah, you, you did mention how he was talking about staffing, right? Uh, with the with the ensign guy, uh, but. Or not? No, did, did. Yeah, it was Yeoman with him. Guy. It was Yeoman, Yeoman Cusack and uh, Pike right. while they were they were drinking and they were talking about who they should get for the next uh, five year mission. Exactly. But um, they have a nice thing there where they have pictures of most of the crew and they have mm-hmm. a little synopsis about all of them as they were uh, reviewing the different staff choices. So yeah. I thought that was very helpful. Yeah, she was on there. Uh, the the Grace with Burning Running or Running with Grace, <laughs> whatever his name is. <laughs> I forget what it is. <laughs> can I can I just mention? I think it's one of the stupidest names ever given. I know he's supposed to be, uh, you know, some kind of. And he, what is he, his name? Is moves with burning grace. Oh, that's it. Moves with burning grace, and he's from. He's a, he's of Maasai descent, so that's some Indian tribe thing. Yes, yeah, some Native American tribe. I'm assuming, yeah. Okay. From the desert world of Aristos. Part hmm. of the first expansion from Earth. 
Anyway, I think I, I thought so. Fine, we're getting some ethnic stuff in there. I just think that name's kind of ridiculous, but whatever. It's a long name. It's a long yeah, they, name. They also mention the. Uh, but they, the, they call him Grace. Do they? Number one refers to him as Grace. Hey, Grace. Yeah. <laughs> so she's. I guess she assumes that if nobody can call her by her name, then she can just abridge everybody else's name. Yeah, but one of the characters they mention here in the when he's like throw, when they're looking through the staff is the the. The head tra- uh, the transporter chief. Yes. They talk about him, and I don't know if he ever shows back up, maybe ever. I mean, I think they show him in the uh, the transporter room. Yeah. But they but definitely say, yeah. Yeah, I they agree. build him up like a big like he's going to be a big character, but he's not in any any of these other issues that we've read so far. Yeah. yeah he's definitely no Miles O'Brien. Nope. Yet. But you know there was a transporter chief in the cage. I wonder if if that's supposed to be him. Maybe it is. Maybe you know. Again, obvious. I'm guessing, or I think you actually said it. You went back to watch the uh, the cage episode. I didn't watch the cage. I went back and watched uh, Menagerie. Menagerie. Okay. But the main point is, you went back and looked at it. So um, I'm going to do the same thing. Yeah, I went back and looked at it because uh, it'd been a long time since I watched those. Which we'll talk about it here in the third issue because it kind of uh, dovetails a little bit straight into the cage. So I have more things to talk about that later. Cool. Okay. Now, what were you talking about? Stud? Some sort of stud Stud outfit? muffin. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, like on – I don't again, they, they don't number things. But right after – at the beginning of the book, after they get past that fantastic – I think it's a fantastic uh, two-page spread – where they got the uh, Enterprise blasting away at all these uh, smaller ships and the space station in the background. Right after that two-page spread, you get uh, introduced to the Commodore. And if right. you look at the Commodore's uh, tunic, it's uh, you know it's, it's basically uh, Kirk, Kirk's tunic. Well, yeah, the wraparound tunic that the, he wore. The, and... the wraparound, exactly, that he yeah. wore in a variety of uh, first, second season, too? I don't know. I think he wore it in the first season, and I think... The reason the first, I think you know, I might be wrong. I think the first time he ever wore it was that episode where he got split into the evil Kurt, good Kurt, uh, where they and had to they, have a way to easily tell one from the other. Exactly. Yeah. So then the evil Kirk stayed in whatever clothes he came up in, and then the good Kirk went and changed into that green shirt. Tunic. Yeah, which I thought Kirk looked good in it. I mean, he has this really big barrel chest, and it yeah. works for him. Yeah. But then later on, uh, who wears it? Uh, Archer in that uh, mirror. Uh, oh, really? Dark mirror oh, yeah. episode. Right. And he's wearing he's wearing it, and it doesn't. I don't think it quite looks as good on him as it did Kirk. Because he's skinnier. Yeah, I guess I don't know, or that is just not used to seeing him in those kind of clothes. Yeah. But anyway, the Commodore is, and uh, it's interesting because this is supposed to be in the past, yet it looks. Looks very similar, if not that on, yeah, to it what does. Kirk uses in the future. But I mean, but their outfits are very similar to what Kirk wears. I mean, true. That's true. These like true. sweater type uniforms are the exact ones that they wore in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Agreed. Agreed. And I like those. I like yeah. those collars. The collars are, are, are good. I like them. Yeah, I like it when they uh, beam down and they actually have those gray like overcoats. I, you know, I always thought having jackets on away missions are a good idea because you got to carry equipment and stuff. And, and the harnesses, 
they use, of course we're talking about the pilot now, um, the harnesses they use underneath the jackets, very cool. I agree. And and I just watched the K, or Menagerie, and, and when they beam down both times to that planet, there's crew members there with these huge backpacks and things like that. And I, I agree. I don't ever remember Kirk's people ever standing on those transported pads with backpacks or anything. I agree. And that's one of the things that we were commenting on in the Gold Key comics, how how they had those uh, backpacks again, or awkward look, even more awkward-looking backpacks. But the main point is that you know they went back to that in uh, in some of those early comics. Yeah, but see, when we were reading those, I I wasn't that I wasn't remembering that they actually had it in the cage. I thought it was something that the that Gold Key just made up. Yeah, and it made sense, but I thought it was just a hundred percent them, but. I guess they were borrowing from the Menagerie episode. So we were talking about Grace, Burning Grace. Uh, I forgot his name again. <laughs> the uh, the Native American engineer. Yeah. Um, did you notice that in the first issue when he spoke, uh, his word balloons was really jaggedy? But here when he's talking in this issue and, and all the issues going forward, he just has normal word balloons. I don't know. Did you catch that? Uh, I did not. I did not. Yeah, but, so uh, I, but Nano definitely has weird word balloons. Maybe they just didn't want to uh, use too people. much of that. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think about Nano, anyways? Um, I think it's very handy to have somebody that can cause spontaneous combustion, uh, as we'll see in the next issue. But um, it's like, uh, uh, he's fine. He's fine. You know, whatever. Yeah, they they. I didn't go into his background, but when when Kusak and them are talking in issue number one, they. They say that he's uh, he's from a planet that's so like their their society is so um, perfect. In, yeah, so perfect that you know when he nobody can leave the planet basically. So so I guess they just created an extra person, and that extra person was him, and he was created just so that he could leave the planet and that he could never come back. So he's yeah. kind of a He's basically a, a an alien. Yeah. yeah. I mean, his, well, he is own... an alien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in, to his own people. Exactly. That's what I meant. Which is really weird. Yeah, so he's kind of like, uh, you know, like Superman or whatever. That he, He's basically the only one that can ever leave, and he can never go back kind of thing. Yeah. I think I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. I mean, uh, at, least, I... at least it gives more reason, uh, <laughs> more reason, motivation behind why he's in Starfleet. And he's definitely very alien-looking. I mean, he's... Yes, he is. They could have never... I don't think they could have done that in the old show and, and made it believable. No. He, he reminds me a lot of Oryx from uh, the cartoon. I agree. I was thinking except, the same thing. Yeah, except this guy doesn't have that third arm like Oryx does. Cool. I did have one other comment, and I forgot what it was now. It is... Oh, yeah! <laughs> the dilithium. When they just shoot the dilithium, and it just <laughs> burns. Yeah, yeah. Now it's a cool kind of like di- kind of like dilithium is somehow like oil or something or coal. That's what yeah. that's what I was thinking. Now I, I I remember in all the Star Trek, if you shoot dilithium, it explodes with like nuclear power, right? I mean, it's like oh, does it? I, I can't remember, but I mean, they're always because... worried about it cracking, and if it cracks, well, it's gonna but... somehow just cause this huge explosion. Yeah, if I remember correctly, the whole thing about dilithium, and and they changed it from time to time. But the only kind of cohesive explanation of dilithium was where you have the matter-antimatter reaction, which 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 uh, creates the power. But then you got to use the dilithium crystals to focus the power into something you can actually use. So that's why 
cracked dilithium is bad because it can't focus the energy that comes off the matter antimatter uh, uh, reaction. Okay. So that was the explanation that I had heard that made the most sense. But then that doesn't make it something that is combustible. Right, and something that'll just burn for forever. I mean, yeah, exactly. They're talking about. Yeah. So it, it reminded me of uh, uh, there is a town in in Pennsylvania <coughs> called Centriel or Centralia, something mm-hmm. like that. And it in 1962 it had like coal fire yeah. in its coal mines, and it's still burning today. Wow. So I mean the the town is a ghost town because nobody can live there. Right. Because underneath the town. These co- these coals are still burning hot, hmm. and so I mean it was kind of the same idea like here that. that he somehow ignites this dilithium and then all right. the dilithium starts burning in, and it's going to burn for years and years and years. So, anyways, I thought it was a cool idea when I read it the first time, and then when I went back and reread it, I was just like, "Wait a minute! I don't think this stuff would just burn like that." I agree. It was a, a bit of a stretch, but again, another manipulation of what how we thought things worked uh, for the story, which is fine, whatever. Now, we it's didn't like talk beaming about... beaming through shields. Beaming through shields, right. We didn't talk about it, but some of the terminology changed from the, ca- uh, the cage to Kirk's Enterprise. So, in, in the cage, they call it time warp and lasers, mm. which is later called phasers and just warp. Mm. Uh, I mean, obviously, this series is using the normal terminology and not the kind of weird terminology that they had in the cage. Because I don't think they even call it Federation of Planets, right? Then he call it something else. But I, I like that they kind of got rid of that and they're calling it what everybody's going to know that it is. Yeah, me too. A lot of times when you do a pilot or something new like that, there's all these kind of rough edges that you haven't quite worked things out yet. So if you're able to work it out and get things right in the later episodes, episodes, why go back to the awkward bits right. of it? But exactly. if you can take some of the uh, old bits of it that still work and bring them forward, that's great. Like the phasers. Right. Or lasers. The yeah, design of the actual uh, hand pistols. The design, but then call them phasers instead of calling Fine. them... Fine. Going back sure. to calling them lasers. Yep. Nothing cool about the word laser, I'm sorry. Phaser man. Alright. You want to go straight into issue number three, or do you have anything else for two... I- I just wanted to briefly mention, um, I love uh, the revenge quote. <laughs> uh, and I don't know whether you saw my notes that I sent, but you'll see that there's a whole thing I, I pasted into the, into the uh, notes for, for this episode. Uh, I, I, I had to find out. I, I wanted to look up where it came from because I was so surprised to see it here. Um, as you'll recall, naturally, it was... Uh, uttered in Wrath of Khan mm-hmm. in the Star Trek universe back in the 80s. Yep. Um, and I, as far as I know, that's the first time it ever came up in the Star Trek universe. It was, um, yeah. And then it was fun to see it come up here. Very cool. Uh, and it's like I was thinking, well, I had heard that that did, you know, they didn't make that, I mean, that there's some kind of literary idiom, that's some kind of literary reference. And I was like, I wonder where that came from. So, I did a little uh, Googling I'm going to try to keep this brief, but I think it's really interesting, even though we're already at an hour. Sorry, everybody out there who might be listening, the one person. This is going to go a little long. Uh, so the first written appearance of the proverb, revenge, revenge is a dish best served cold, is often wrongly credited to the 18th century novel, Les Liaisons Dangerales. 
dangerous liaisons. But in fact, there's no reference to it in that in that in that book. Hmm. Um, it is also said to have been borrowed from 19th century British writers from the Afghan Pushtuns. Interesting. However, its earliest identified appearance is in European literature of 1841 French novel Matilde by Marie-Joseph Eugene Sue. Um, anyway, so, so the quote actually is, Revenge is very good eaten cold. So that was the real original uh, translation of, I guess, the French uh, saying. Mm-hmm. Um, the popular... The, the popularly familiar wording that we have can be attributed to The Godfather by Mario Puzo in uh, Bestseller. So in 1969, apparently, that's where the current uh, wording um, comes from, which is very interesting. I never knew that. Hmm. Or I'm, I'm sorry, it's attributed to The Godfather novel, but actually it was even earlier than that. In 1949, a film called Kind Hearts and Coronets had, had it as Revenge is a dish which people of taste prefer to eat cold. That's a bit wordy, but there you go with the Brits. Right. Uh, the, oh. familiar, the familiar wording more recently appears in the title sequence of the Quentin Tarantino film Kill Bill Volume 1, accredited to an old Klingon proverb. I love that. That is great. Don't you love Tarantino? I love Tarantino. That's great. Yeah. And, of course, odds are Tarantino got it from Wrath of Khan, of course, since he says it's an old Klingon problem. Yeah. So it's like uh, I, I, I just – I'm sorry that took some time, but that's kind of interesting, and I just thought I'd mention that. I'm glad you did because I think we talked about it briefly in episode 10, did which we? was the, the manga series. We talked about how – they were talking about how they had similar philosophers like uh, oh, the guy who right. wrote The Art of War, and we kind of right. went on a tangent or something there. And I do remember us talking about it because I, I, I thought it was that French novel, that first one you said. Right. Because uh, I remember I looked it up a while back because I wanted to see which, which where it came from because I thought it might have been from uh, Mr. Freeze from the Batman. Batman. Comics. <laughs> yeah, because he says it a lot too. Huh. So I remember looking it up a while back, and and I always thought it was that uh, Dangerous Liaison book. Right. But that's interesting that it's not even in there. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. And I never read the book. I just saw the movie, which I thought was excellent, by the way. John Malkovich. It's really good. Um, But, yeah, there you go. So that's that's the history of it, at least according to Wikipedia. Which is never wrong. (laughs) Yes, well. It's 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 like you or I writing a Wikipedia entry where we got half of it wrong. So, like this podcast, which like the podcast exactly. Sometimes we're not quite right. No, <laughs> well, that's that's a good way to put it. Especially that's when we go off on these little tangents where we just exactly. try to grab stuff from memory, and yes. uh, we're not always right. No, not always. All right, so Star Trek Early Voyages, issue number three, came out in April ninety-seven, titled Our. Dearest Blood. So the uh, credits go to the same folks from the other ones. We have uh, Ian Edkinton and Dan Abnett as the writers, Patrick uh, Zercher as penciler, Greg Adams inker, Marie Javins colorist, uh, Janice Chiang letterer, Bobby Chase editor. I'm sorry. Janice Chang is the letterer, Bobby Chase is the editor. 
and Bob Harris is the editor-in-chief. All right, so we start off with this uh, huge celebration-type parade going on in the streets of uh, Rigel 7. Another two-page uh, spread? Yeah, very nice one, too. I, it's one of, I really like these, these yep. two-page spreads. Really just brings you straight into the story and, and makes you feel like something's really going on. All right, so during this big uh, parade celebration, uh, it's to uh, commensurate, commensurate the ratification of Rigel 7 becoming a member of the Federation. Uh, the celebration is the uh, basically the last hurrah of the inhabitants of Rigel 7 because they're about to uh, get rid of their barbaric past and start becoming, uh, um, they call them noble, these noble figures uh, within the Federation. So uh, up on a balcony, Pike and the crew are introduced to uh, Minister Estashin. I'm really bad at names. Uh, E-T-A-S-H-N-A-N. Etashin, uh, however you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, it's an alien. What do you want? Yeah. Who looks just like a human, but it's an alien name. Exactly. So he is the diplomat that's responsible for the the whole government change and they're being ra- uh, um, ratified into the Federation. So we're introduced to him, and we're introduced to his aide, Talza, who's this beautiful, blonde, young woman. So Talza offers to take Pike to the Zimtar Fortress, where the evening uh, ceremony is going to be. Uh, Pike agrees, and uh, Yeoman, Cusack, and Dr. Boyce discuss how this might be just the thing Pike needs to get over the ordeal that he suffered uh, at the hands of the uh, Nergaltu, or... Basically the bad guys from the first issue. <laughs> um, so uh, so back aboard the Enterprise, uh, number one starts assigning the crew for shore leave. Uh, Spock, Nano, and the uh, the Asian woman, uh, Sita Mirandes. Maybe she's not Asian. She kind of looks it, but anyways. Uh, they're, they're the bridge that's just, uh, assigned to go down uh, to celebrate. So back on the planet, uh, Pike and Talza are, are arriving at the fortress. It looks just like it does in uh, in the episode "The Cage." So they're they're walking up towards the uh, the, the castle, and uh, as they're walking up towards the castle, we see that they're being followed by a large uh, regalian man uh, who's kind of following them in the in the dark. So back in town, Cusack is with the crew, and they're uh, talking about how to make the perfect drink. And so as they're having a good time there in the bar, the doctor is out on the balcony talking to himself, saying odd things like, let me be, and I will not listen, and leave me alone, and things like that. So uh, Sita shows up, and she asks him if he's okay. He snaps out of it and says that he's just out there enjoying the fresh air. So then we flash back to the fortress, and we have Pike uh, noticing that his communicator is not working. And just then, uh, he and Talza are attacked by the huge regalian. And this guy is probably 10 feet tall. I mean, he's monstrous. All right, so back aboard the Enterprise, uh, moves with Burning Grace and number one are uh, at a huge window, just stargazing. Uh, when the bridge comes, uh, comes number one and informs her that uh, there's a communication block uh, between the ship and the surface. So back in the bar, uh, Sita and Cusack uh, also discover that they're being jammed. 
And just then, all the warriors in the bar start attacking the crew. And we get this great shot where some unnamed blue shirt guy is like nearly cut in half by one of these gigantic axes. Uh, Nano is injured uh, before he can use his pyrotechnic uh, powers against his attacker, which he's eventually able to do and get away, but he, he is hit on the head. Uh, Spock has his leg injured, uh, but most of the crew is able to escape the riot. So we flash back to the uh, fortress. Uh, Pike is now injured. Uh, he orders Talza to escape while he continues the fight. So the crew are now in like a uh, storeroom of some sort, uh, attending to their injuries. Uh, they were able to hide from the mob. Uh, Nano is uh, able to devise a, a, a little device, a tracker of some sort, that will uh, allow them to find uh, the jamming uh, device. So Kusaka volunteers to go, and, and, and he heads off to try to find it. So while he's searching for the device, uh, we see Pike uh, ends up killing the regalian by having the, the giant man uh, impale himself on a sword. Very similar to how he does it in the uh, the cage episode. All right, so Kusak finishes disabling the device, uh, and just as he's done, Talza jumps up from behind him and stabs him in the back. Pike is pinned down by the large dead Regalian man when uh, several other warriors come in ready to, to kill him. Uh, just then, Helmsman Tyler and some other crew beam down, and they're able to stun stun all the warriors. Uh, then we get a captain's log, which informs him or informs us, the reader, that uh, the petition to join the Federation was denied. Uh, Pike arrives to the town to find Talza continuing to threaten them and says that she's going to end up killing them all. Uh, Pike just uh, ignores her. I think he even asks her to be removed from the room, and he goes to uh, Yeoman Kusak's body, and the doctor informs him that he is dead. And then that's the end. So we have our first uh, major casualty here. Exactly. Their dearest blood. So, so this yeoman has been built up pretty well in the first uh, two issues. And uh, uh, first three issues. And then um, cut down to show it's serious business. Yeah, so what do you think about when that, uh, not necessarily when Kusat got killed, but what about that blue shirt guy there in the bar? Oh, I thought it was good. Uh, so he gets hacked up by the big broadsword, and the look on the kid's face as he hits the ground is pretty like, pretty much like, uh, I have no idea what just happened, but I don't like it. <laughs> and I do like that he's a blue shirt, because at this point they don't have red shirts yet, so yeah. you can't kill the red shirt, so we're going to just kill blue ones. But no, I really thought, and I liked that, and I liked how, uh, I mean, I, I hate to say you like that somebody died, but I thought it was a good storytelling device where the close friend of the captain is the one that ends up getting killed. Yeah, and ends up getting killed by that, uh, by that witch. Yeah, the woman that Pike saves. So he's basically saves her from being killed, or he thinks he did. He thinks he did. And then she ends up killing his best friend. Yes. And after he's uh, stabbed in the back, it's very obvious, although you you pretty much know by the look on her face when Pike tells her to leave, and then she says, okay, you say so. Yeah. You can tell by the look on her face she's in on it, but you don't realize exactly how in on it. Uh, but then when she ends up killing uh, the omen, you know. And she's, she's, she's nasty. 
I mean, she's got great cleavage, but man, she is a nasty person. Yeah, she's leaning way over so that you get a nice cleavage shot. But yeah, <laughs> and, and she's just gloating over it, over him. Yeah, like, she's nasty. I killed you. Yeah. And then especially when later on when when Pike shows up and she's like in restraints and she's still just saying how she's just going to kill everybody. Yeah. And she does look a little bit like, what, Mina? I think Mina was the name of the – yeah. in the pilot. The a little bit. A little bit, yeah. I do like how they gave her a different name, and she's obviously not the same character. No, no, as you would not want her to be. But very similar. Yeah, and I thought this was – this is obviously the story that leads up to the Cage episode. Exactly. And I thought this was really good because – I mean, if this just happened to Pike before we see the cage, all his self-doubt and beating himself up that he does in that episode makes complete sense. I mean, much more just, sense. Yeah, because if you just watch the cage by itself, you think, why is this guy? I mean, he's a whiner. He's, yeah, he knew that he was going to be responsible for two hundred and something people. He's like, why is he crying about it now? Exactly. But I mean, if they just got through this huge fight. From a place where they were – I mean they thought this was going to be a new Federation planet and ends up being this really hostile planet that kills everybody. Uh, sure. You could see how that might uh, make you reevaluate some of your earlier decisions. And as I was reading this issue and the second issue and hell, maybe even the first issue, but definitely the second and the third, I was thinking, man, you know, these are some pretty good stories. I mean you could make um, – uh, new TV show episodes or even maybe the new uh, I'm, who knows exactly where J.J. Abrams will take the new movies uh, but you know could, could you see the uh, the new crew going to an alien planet thinking everything's cool and then all the, the, the feces hits the fan yeah, uh, it's... yeah I could see them doing some pretty compelling uh, storylines around that yeah, I could totally do it too. And, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I think as far as timeline goes, uh, the year, I think this is supposed to be like 2253 or something. And that's the same time that the the new movie was supposed to happen. So these are like – this is basically one timeline of the same year that the um, that the new movie happened. Interesting. Good yeah. point. Good point. Uh, Spock was very young in these. Spock is very young in the uh, in the new movie. Right. So at this at this point, Kirk in the in I guess you would call the original timeline. Kirk is still, you know, uh, just going on to his first ship as a lieutenant or whatever sure. he he goes in as. Right. Uh, he hasn't moved up the ranks quite so fast like he does in the new movie. But no, I, I totally – these stories are great. I really enjoyed uh, the second. and The first one I didn't really like that much just because it was this huge amiibo-looking thing attacking the Enterprise, which we saw a little in the in the old show. But these, these next two I thought were more, you know, personal. You know, you're actually fighting somebody uh, that has a face instead of just some monster. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So and I did, like I said, I watched the Menagerie episode before I started reading these. And in the Menagerie episode, when Spock walks around, he walks with an incredible limp. 
And I kept thinking, I was like, I don't remember them explaining it in the Menagerie episode, but maybe in the uncut The Cage episode, maybe it's explained why Spock is limping so bad. Huh. Now, I haven't gone back to watch The Cage but uh, to see if that's, that's, that's true. But here in this comic book, Spock has his leg injured. It shows them wrapping up his leg uh, in these bandages. And I was like, what great attention to detail. I mean, you, you have this one shot in the menagerie where Spock is limping when he's walking. And then you're going to create the story that happens right before that. And you're like, well, we, we got to injure his leg somehow. And they do. Yeah. I, I was really impressed. That's a very good point. I, I did not see that at all. I don't remember noticing that in the, uh, in the original pilot. But now that I go – when I go back and look at it, uh, it will obviously be something I'll be looking for. Yeah, watch it when they first beam down and Spock is walking over to the the plant, which which he touches, and then it starts singing. And then he smiles, which is a little uncharacteristic for him. Yeah. But when he's walking towards that plant, uh, he has this real heavy limp. Huh. But uh, I, And I just happened to catch it when I was watching the episode, and I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, and then here in this ep- issue, it, it explains it, and I, yeah. I thought that was in and, – And that's pretty cool if they actually did that in the original uh, pilot. Because uh, Pike definitely refers to their own sick and injured, right? About yeah. one of the reasons he didn't want to go to investigate the uh, that SOS signal. So, right. um, you know, again, that kind of it, it, it all ties in well. Yeah, very good writing, I think. So uh, the the I kind of talked about it when we were um, doing the synopsis, but those regalians they're they're huge. Yeah. Are they supposed to be like ten, twelve feet tall? Well, like they're depicted here. Well, the only thing we know, even though I think Rigel Seven has been mentioned at other times, um, in the original series, uh, I think the only time we actually saw these guys was in the pilot. And, right. And and the actor they had doing it was a pretty big guy. Uh, I don't know. About, I don't know about twelve feet tall or ten feet tall, but. He was pretty good, uh, good-sized guy. Yeah, well, like I said, I just watched it, and, and when he's by himself and he's, like, opening the doors and ripping the doors off of their frames and stuff looking for them, they film it really low so that he looks monstrous. Right. And then, But when he and Pike start fighting, you see that he's maybe only three or four inches taller than Pike. But when he's by himself on camera, I mean, he they really build him up that he's – Really tall. Yeah. So then, then I couldn't tell while I was watching that. I was like, "Is he supposed to be twelve feet tall, or is he just a normal sized man?" And they were just shooting him odd. Um, and then when I started reading this book, and he's, you know, you don't have to worry about special effects in a comic book. <laughs> and uh, you know, he really is twelve feet tall or yeah. ten feet tall. So, anyways, I, I liked it. I thought the the fight scene was really good. Yeah, uh, another good one. I'm looking forward to the. Uh... Next round, which I believe we'll be doing the uh, next three in the series next week, or next time we meet. Yeah, I think that we should. Uh, I really like this series, and I kind of want to see where it, where it goes. We've already hit all the major series on all the major uh, publishers, so I think it's time to stick with one and maybe write it, write it a couple of episodes. And it seems like you agree with me, so that's great. I do. I do. All right. Anything else on this issue? Um, no. I think we covered it all. So uh, just super quick about the Elsewheres in Star Trek. Uh, 
this came out at the maybe the the height of Star Trek mania, I guess. Uh, we were like in season five of Deep Space Nine and season three of Voyager, and just tons of Star Trek stuff was coming out. Uh, uh, Marvel had uh, this comic book series going, another comic book series based on Deep Space Nine, Voyager, the original series, um, Deep uh, Next Generation. Uh, as you see in this book, there's advertisements for First Contact. So, I mean, we're we're really when Star Trek was was everywhere. Uh, so, uh, but aside from the comic books, the only novels that were coming out was a Deep Space Nine novel called The Tempest, um, and a Voyager novel, Chrysalis, and a Next Generation novel called Intellivore, <laughs> which I have not read any of those, so I'm not going to be able to talk about them. But, uh, but. Uh, I remember this time, and it was a it was a good time to be a Star Trek fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I like when we've got a lot of stuff going to uh, new material coming out. Yeah, yeah. So Star Trek's been it's really hot, and then it dies away, and then it'll come back, and it's really hot, and then it dies away, and then. So, anyways, anything else, kid? Nothing else, man. All right, so next issue or next episode, we will do, what, four, five, and six of Early Voyages? We will. And four, I know for sure, is an adaptation of The Cage. I can't remember if four and five are both uh, uh, a continuing story or if they just get it all in, in that one issue. So we'll find out next week. We'll have a lot of comparing and contrasting to do on that fourth issue. Yeah, I'll have to track down my uh, season three of the original series DVDs because I think that's the one that has the unaltered version of the cage on there. Yes. All right. Well, I think we should close up, Ken. It's been a long I, time. I think so. I think so. All right. Well, you have a good weekend, and we will get back together next week to talk about uh, the continuing early voyages of Starship Enterprise. Yes, when we all reconvene for Star Trek comic book review issue 14 later everybody take care thank you for listening to Star Trek comic book review all Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated all music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only you can email us at star t comic book review at gmail.com Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.